Seemingly, every other week or so, there's a new story in the news about one of several ongoing territorial disputes embroiling Japan and its East Asian neighbors. In January 2019, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov questioned why Japan is the only country who has still not learned the lessons of World War II. As recently as April 3, 2019, Japan protested Russian naval drills currently underway in the Kuril Islands. This dispute over the Kurils is just one territorial conflict disrupting Japanese diplomacy. Japan is embroiled in disputes with China and Taiwan over Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands, as well as with Korea over the islands Takeshima or Dokuto. Not to mention arguments about the very name of the sea separating Japan and Korea. What is the historical background of these territorial disputes? What are some of the economic and strategic factors prolonging these disagreements? And is there any hope for future resolution? My name is Liam. My name is Eric. My name is Alex. And, and this, this is the Japan, Japan on the Record Special Student Podcast. Hello, everybody. Hey. hey. So, Liam, as we heard, there is a recent flare-up of the dispute between Japan and Russia over the Kuril Island chains, and these islands are just off the coast of Hokkaido. And I understand there's a, a very long history of conflict between these two countries over these islands, which seemingly small and unimportant islands, but in fact are leading to very heated tensions between the two countries. Can you give us a little bit of the historical background about these islands? Absolutely. Now. One of the things that we have to understand when discussing the Kurilans is that the history goes very, very far back. In fact, it dates all the way back to 1855 with the Treaty of Shimoda, in which the Tokugawa Bakufu and the Tsarist Empire signed their very first diplomatic treaty with one another, and they agreed along the territorial boundaries north of Hokkaido. So, what we now call, or what Japan calls, the Northern Territories, the islands of Kunashir, Shikotan, Habomai Islands, and Itrup are, are what Japan now calls the Northern Territories. Russia calls these islands the Southern Kuril Islands, and we can see this dispute dates back quite a ways. Now that treaty segregated the islands between the Northern Territories and the rest of the Kuril Island chain. However, this would be amended in the later Treaty of Saint Petersburg in 1875, in which Japan would rescind territorial claims on the island of Sakhalin, and in return they would get the rest of the Kuril Island chain. So, as we heard as recently as April third, just last week, Japan was protesting over Russian naval drills in the Kuril Islands. So, obviously, Russia is occupying the islands now. But have they always occupied the islands? And at what point did possession of the islands change hands?、Uh, that's a very, very important issue with regards to the current conflict. Now, Japan would hold on to these islands up until the Second World War, after Japanese surrender. And the signing of the San Francisco Treaty in, in 1951, Japan would formally rescind sovereignty of those islands. However, it is worth noting that the Soviet Union never technically signed this treaty, and that instead, Japanese and Soviet relations would be in a state of limbo up until 1956, in which a joint declaration would be issued restoring formal relations between the two states. Now, the Soviet Union had invaded the Kuril Islands during the Second World War. Right at the tail end of the conflict, and what they had done is that they had expelled almost the entire population from the islands to Japan. And so now, since the 1940s, there has been a migration of ethnically Russian and Ukrainian, along with other Soviet minority groups, to the Kuril Islands. And today, 
you have a population that is majority ethnically European and not Japanese or Ainu. That's fascinating, and I want to circle back to the population of the islands today, but uh, let's go back to the end of World War II. I understand there's an agreement called the Cairo Declaration between Roosevelt and Stalin, which is basically promises to Stalin that if the Soviet Union enters the war on the Allied side, they'll be able to recover all of the lands that Japan took following the Russo-Japanese War, is that correct? But then Stalin even kind of overexceeds those agreements when he takes these islands, does he not? That is exactly correct. It was stated that the Treaty of Portsmouth that ended the Russo-Japanese War would be the defining point in which Japanese territory would be brought back to. Now, it's interesting that that actually include the entire Kuril Island chain, that the Russian Empire, prior to the Russo-Japanese War, had voluntarily given Japan the entire islands. However, in the aftermath of the Second World War, the Japanese would acknowledge the fact that their claims to the northern Kuril Islands were fairly weak in nature, and so that they only decide to further claim the southern northern territories portion of the Kuril Islands, because these had an even longer history of Japanese control, and that they were far more likely to get some of the islands rather than all of the islands after the, the war's end. So then after the war, you mentioned that there is forced migration campaigns and people get displaced and now there's a new wave of migration into the islands today. Can you tell us a little bit more about that process of relocation and migration? Sure. Uh, Prior to the war's end, the Japanese government actually started evacuation campaigns because they knew the Soviet Union was about to invade these islands and that they wanted to make sure that Japanese citizens would not be brutalized in any sort of uh, way during the war. So a significant portion of the island of the civilian and military population evacuated the islands in the 1940s. And then once the Soviet Union invaded, the rest of the population would be forcibly expelled from their homes on these islands, which included about 20,000 citizens and approximately 40 to 50,000 military personnel who were just there temporarily. After the expulsion, there were effectively no Japanese nationals on those islands at that point. And actually, a lot of islands that used to be inhabited up until the 1940s became uninhabited, and many of those islands are still uninhabited to this day. Aside from the issue of who lives there, what are some of the factors that are making this disagreement so heated? What are the things that are actually at stake here? There are, there are two major factors, one of which is less important than the other, and I'll, and I'll discuss that one first. The question of resources is obviously important. The Kuril Islands is surrounded by ocean territory, and a lot of that is very valuable for fishing. And currently, fishing is the most important domestic industry on those islands. However, from a different point of view, the most important aspect as it relates to Japanese and Russian relations is the issue of security and strategic importance. Japan is currently an ally of the United States, and any prospect of giving up territory from the side of the Russians to Japan would be unacceptable from the point of view of the Russian state, since this would effectively expand the U.S. security blanket. It would permit U.S. bases on former Russian territory, territory that's now even closer to the mainland. And it would be a political nightmare from the point of view of the Russians, since there's virtually no support within the domestic population of the Korea Islands or within the domestic population of the, the Russian Federation. And almost every Russian political party, particularly Unite Russia and the Communist Party, are staunchly opposed to this idea of handing over the islands. And speaking of strategically important islands, in some cases some that are even uninhabited, the Creoles are certainly not the only 
island chain at issue between Japan and some and its surrounding neighbors. And of course, this brings to mind the Senkaku or Daoyu Islands that are being contested between Japan and a number of East Asian countries, such as China and Taiwan. Now, Eric, I understand you've been looking into this issue. So can you tell us, again, with these islands, what are the issues at stake? And then go into some of the historical background. Sure, that's a great question. Currently, right now, the primary issue at stake is it really is a factor of military, and it's almost like a proxy dispute. As you kind of mentioned, these islands are inhabited, there's no population, and these islands are realistically so small that even if you wanted to, you couldn't inhabit them. These islands are just off the coast of Taiwan, so they are actually really close to uh, China as well as Taiwan. And then when we go back into more of the historical background, we'll kind of see how this kind of plays a part in these some of these tensions. But from a strategic point of view, really China never laid any sort of claim towards these islands till about 1971 until the United Nations Economic Council for Asia and the Far East found possible oil reserves by the islands. And it wasn't really up until this point that China laid any sort of formal claim or made any sort of aggressions towards taking those islands. And so that's kind of one of the the primary driver behind the conflict today. But you mentioned these islands are just off the northern coast of Taiwan, making them much closer to Taiwan and to China than to what we might think of as the mainland of Japan. So where does the Japanese claim over these islands come from? So the Japanese claim really starts at the just following the Meiji Restoration. So originally they're part of the Ryukyu Kingdom, which is now known as the Okinawa Prefecture. And it was formally annexed in 1879 by the emperor. However, interesting that they actually previously declared that they were part of Japanese territory back in 1872. However, they were kind of concerned that they were close to China's territory and that if they went and formally annexed them 100% and took control, that it would be seen as like an act of aggression. And especially during this time, Chinese media was actually running stories that Japan was illegally going and occupying uninhabited inhabited islands off the coast of China. And so foreign minister actually went and intervened and said, actually, let's hold off on that until a later date, which ended up a little bit pointless because they ended up invading China about nine years down the line, four months before the end of this war. And they signed the Treaty of Shimonoseki. Japan went and formally claimed in parliament that they were part of Japanese territory and they did follow the international law guidelines. So they declared that they're terra nullius. So they're unclaimed land. They erected signposts to to officially claim and include them as part of Japanese territory. And then in the Treaty of Shimonoseki, China actually went and ceded Taiwan and any islands pertaining to Taiwan which at the time was known as the Kingdom of Formosa, which was a very small, short-lived government, which was just basically in rebellion of Japanese rule. But so the treaty, they officially ceded them to Japan. And Japan basically had control of these islands up until the Second World War, where they ended up losing, and the United States occupied Japan. And as part of that, to supersede that, they signed the Treaty of San Francisco, which explicitly stated that reversed their prior treaty and said that Japan had to hand back all sovereignty of Taiwan and the related islands back to China. But you mentioned from Japan's perspective, these islands were part of Okinawa Prefecture from 1879. And one stipulation of the Treaty of San Francisco was that the U.S. would occupy Okinawa up until finally reverted in 1972. Were these Senkaku slash Daoyu islands included in that American occupation? Or did the Americans consider these islands part of Taiwan? I mean, so basically, where did these islands fall into this kind of hazy diplomatic agreement between Japan? 
Japan and the U.S. regarding the occupation of Okinawa. Yeah, so that's obviously a very interesting point, and it is really an area where the U.S. kind of flip-flopped on their position in order to make almost concessions to China to improve their relationship. During the Nixon administration, he actually went and visited China. So initially during the San Francisco Treaty negotiations, the U.S. representative stated that Japan would have residual sovereignty over the Okinawa prefecture, including the Sankaku Islands. This residual sovereignty concept was the whole idea behind the U.S. occupation. So U.S. policy officials went on record and said, yes, Japan, it's your islands. However, until we determine it's in the best interest of world peace, we'll remain control. Once we determine that you're ready to be a responsible member of the world government, we'll give you back your sovereignty. And so President Kennedy issued an explicit executive order recognizing the Rukus or the Senkaku Islands and Okinawa Prefecture to be a part of Japanese homeland. And then this was further initially supported by Nixon and Henry Kissinger during the negotiations. However, when they ended up putting forward the Okinawa Reversion Treaty to Congress for ratification, they actually removed these clauses, specifically stating that the Senkaku Islands would be returned to Japan. And their official position ended up being that we have no position on historical issues of sovereignty and it's between Japan and China to sort out. And that's really been the policy of the State Department going forwards to this day. However, if you look at what executive members of the U.S. government, as well as the military, have said, it's very much on the other end, as well as the Senate. So the Senate has gone and the Senate has gone and passed a resolution, was unanimously approved by both sides of the aisle, stating that yes, the Senkaku Islands are protected under the Treaty of Mutual Cooperation and Security between the United States and Japan, as well as the National Defense Authorization Act was amended to include the Senkaku Islands. And the most telling sign of this was President Obama uh, during his visit to Japan, when it stated yes. If there was an incident around the Senkaku Islands between China and Japan or some other East Asian nation, that the United States would be obligated under the treaty to protect and defend them. So it's very interesting. You've got, kind of got this contrast between the position of the State Department, which says, you know, we don't want to take a position just to maintain relationships with China. But on the other end, in the executive branch, from the high-level leaders, as well as the military, they've said, no, well, actually... We will defend it, and we do consider it part of Japanese territory. And the timing of that initial removal of the Senkakus from this agreement between the United States and Japan at the time of reverting Okinawa in, in 1972, the timing of that is also really curious. I mean, I mean, you mentioned that there's suggestions that they did this as a way to appease China. You know, keep in mind, 1972 is also the year that Nixon goes to China and restarts normal diplomatic relations between China and the United States. So it would make sense that uh, they're doing this as a way to appease Chinese interests. Um, that's really fascinating. And then you said it's around this time that oil is discovered, and that's really when the Chinese claims over the island start? So the Chinese first official complaint about the sovereignty of the islands was in 1971, before the Okinawa Reversion Treaty was finalized and ratified, they made an official protest. And then in later, very interesting official diplomatic messages from the Chinese foreign ministry, they went as far as calling Japan gangsters, and that it was a serious issue of Japanese colonialism. As we kind of mentioned earlier, it's very much down the same line of thinking as Russia, where they're almost, they're not directly saying it, but they're basically saying, you know, Japan hasn't learned its lessons from World War II. From the U.S. side as well, the Central Intelligence Agency, when these claims were made by China, they went into an investigation into it. And they stated that without the United Nations saying there's a high probability of oil reserves being found there, China would not be making a claim. And that's a great example of how many of these territorial disputes are, you know, the islands themselves might not be that important, but it's the sea around them. And particularly from this perspective of strategic interests, also uh, economic resources. 
And then even in some cases, the names of the seas themselves is what comes into question. And this is certainly the case between South Korea and Japan, where there is an issue of, over Takashima Dokdo, this uh, disputed island uh, between the two countries. Uh, but this kind of goes even broader into the very question of what should we be calling the sea that separates the two countries? And Alex, you've been looking into this question. and. What have you discovered so far about this controversy? I mean, the Sea of Japan, or the East Sea, as Korea would prefer to be called, has been an issue of contentious debate for a while now. In 1992, North and South Korea formally opposed the name Sea of Japan at the 6th UN Conference on the Standardization of Geographical Names. North Korea's preference was the Korean Eastern Sea, whereas South Korea's preference was just East Sea. The Korean arguments for this was, well, I mean, with North Korea, unsurprisingly, their reasoning to change it to Korean Eastern Sea was motivated by pure nationalism, and their request was pretty much ignored by all legitimate international authorities. But South Korea, however, created their argument based around historical evidence. According to the South Korean Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the name East Sea has been used for over 2,000 years, but this evidence comes from the Samguk Sagi, which is a dynastic history book, and I mean, it has a really heavy political bias, so it's pretty difficult to take everything said in it at a face value. But South Korea argues that there was no standard name prior to Japanese military expansion in Korea during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So that's their main issue there, that they were never in a position where they could argue for their name. So it sounds like then South Korea is making the argument that what's otherwise known as the Sea of Japan should be called the East Sea, mainly based on historical factors. What then is Japan's position in response to this? Well, Japan, however, claims that the Sea of Japan has been internationally used since the 17th century and was actually established internationally in the early 19th century. Now, this was like during a period in which Japan was under the Tokugawa isolationist policy. So Japan could not have had an influence on the international community regarding the naming of that sea. And, I mean, they have evidence dating back to 1602 from Matteo Ricci's map. He was this Italian missionary in China that was mapping the area. And so, you know, from that, they're saying it wasn't us that were uh, promulgating the name Sea of Japan, but rather the Europeans, hence the current worldwide accepted name. And I recall seeing in the news several years ago that I believe it was in the state of Virginia, there was a law passed saying that public school textbooks have to list both Sea of Japan and East Sea uh, on all of the maps. And, and so I'm curious, you know, obviously in Korea there's movements in order to rename the sea, but I'm wondering how much traction are these movements getting overseas? What is the international reaction to this issue? Yeah, so in Korea, actually, it's quite a lot of people are quite passionate about the name East Sea. There was even a group of Korean university students that went into their collegiate library and they went around relabeling all the atlases from Sea of Japan to East Sea. And they documented this and it was kind of this piece of national pride. So it's kind of interesting because I don't really think a lot of Japanese people think too much about it, or at least like the Japanese students. But Korea, it kind of represents them being robbed of their national identity and that this whole continuing to call it Sea of Japan is just furthering of Japanese colonialism. Meanwhile, Japan refuses to make any compromises, really. 
so from 2003 to 2008, Korea and Japan were both conducting research on ancient maps. They were going through all these different museums in the UK and in America, looking at all these old maps and seeing what names were being used. And really, it came to inconclusive results. In 2006, the South Korean president, No Moon Hyun, proposed the name Sea of Friendship, or also the Sea of Peace, to which uh, Shinzo Abe immediately shot down. <laughs> this was kind of an informal request, but in 2012, the term EC as an alternative name was officially rejected by the International Hydrographic Organization, which is the intergovernmental organization with authority over international hydrographic standards. In previous podcasts, we've been discussing various U.S.-Japanese relations, and Obama had been really calling for Japan to ameliorate their bilateral relations with Korea, and obviously both countries are very stubborn and have really strong nationalistic tendencies in regards to this naming debate, but... As of now, when you look at scholarly articles, they're very heavily biased towards the Korean side. It's all very much like trying to reclaim, you know, this Korean national identity and Japan's so terrible with their colonial uh, tendencies. But the world still does see it as a sea of Japan. You just, you know, Google it on Wikipedia. It's the sea of Japan. So, so it kind of makes sense that Japan's not re- doesn't really want to make an issue out of it if the rest of the world kind of accepts it as is. And that would explain then uh, why there's such uh, efforts on the Korean side in order to raise awareness of the issue. Do you see any chance of resolution? Um, I, I wish I could say yes. But, I mean, just looking at the history of the relationship between South Korea and Japan, I, I mean, I think it's realistic to say not really unless an international authority stepped in and said, hey, kids, cut it out, stop fighting. We're going to resolve this now. And that raises an important point about all of these issues. Is there a possibility of resolution or are these strategic and economic factors so ingrained and so important that no resolution is really foreseeable? I think especially in terms of the Senkaku Islands, resolution is not really a realistic possibility. I mean, China recently when I think it was late 2012, they established the air defense zone where they said anyone flying over this area has got to register their flight transponder, their flight path, their radio frequency with us. And this is just basically being completely ignored by everyone in the region. So the United States has flown B-52 bombers over it without registering their transponder flight path or frequency and basically went on and declared that it's international airspace and they're not going to do anything about it. This has also been flouted by both Japan and South Korea. So I think both sides are going to make more and more moves to try to declare as theirs. We've also seen, especially with China, this is not only for this issue, but in general has really tried to beef up their naval presence as it pales and compared to the power of the United States as well as Japan. This decade, they made their first ever aircraft carrier since World War II in response to, and I guess, wavering confidence in the U.S. ability to defend them. You mean the Izumo helicopter carrier? So initially, Japan went and made this aircraft carrier, and they branded it as a helicopter carrier. But if it can hold a helicopter that can fly off and take it on sea, it's effectively an aircraft carrier. But it's really just pedantics in terms of maintaining their commitments under the treaty. With regards to the Kuril Islands and any potential future resolution, I think it's a really interesting thing to think about since at the current point in time, neither Russia nor Japan really have any motivation to change their current uh, policy convictions. The Russians have administrative control of the islands and no one really wants, in Russia, wants to give up those islands. And the Japanese 
would like continue claiming the islands and they have no real benefit from not claiming the island. And so from that point of view, there isn't really any way that this can reasonably be solved. However, uh, one strain of thought or political thought within Russia that's been sympathetic to the idea of giving up the islands is as a way of attacking the United States. If Japan were ever to seriously consider abandoning the U.S. alliance in favor of Russia giving up the Kuril Islands, then it's reasonable that uh, many Russian political elites would consider the move. But since Liberal Democratic Party has no intention of moving away from the United States, that seems rather fanciful at the current point in time. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record podcasts where scholars and academics bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Japan on the Record is hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, BC. Thank you for listening.